this evening. Colossians 3, we left off looking at verse 4 this morning and going to continue on in verses 5 through 7 tonight. This past week, don't remember what day of the week it was, but I came home from work uh, near dinner time and uh, went through the house and uh, went to a door that was closed. Unbeknownst to me, I entered the danger zone. Um, I was not warned ahead of time, but I went through the closed door not knowing that there was an unknown, unseen adversary in the room, um, having no like sign at all. And uh, went in the room, came back out. I was actually fine. The unknown, unseen adversary did not mess with me. And uh, I go down the hall, and all of a sudden, I have the questions. Did you go? Yes, I, I went in. Like, did you get it? Get what? Um, because maybe it works this way in your house, maybe it doesn't, but there was a wasp in the bedroom uh, that I had gone into, and rather than kill the wasp, it was closed, and the door was left for Dad to come home uh, to deal with the wasp who was somewhere lurking. And you know how that goes, right? You go in the room, you look for the wasp, and you're like, there is no wasp. You know, you're pulling the curtains back, looking at all the windows, and I did not find a wasp. But evidently, someone did later. I'm not sure who did, and I actually did not kill it at that point, although I was home. Uh, someone else disposed of this dreaded terror, the wasp that was in the bedroom. Um, you know, there's all kinds of things like that that enter our homes. You know, wasp is fairly easy. I remember one time coming into the laundry room and there was a snake in the laundry room. The only reason I can figure is that often the door between our garage and laundry room and then the door from the garage to the outside, those stay open for long stretches of time. And if you know, like the dads in the room just cringe, right? Those of us who go around shutting doors, flipping light switches off. Um, but, you know, one time there's a snake in the laundry room. So whether it's snakes, whether it's wasps, whether it's the dreaded mice that occasionally show up, you're like, they have gone where they do not belong. This is domesticated territory. Uh, this is a well-taken-care-of area. You know, maybe 100 years ago when this was farmland or woods, um, you could live here. But somewhere along the way, a house was built, we moved in, and you cannot enter any longer. If you do, your life is in jeopardy. The wasps, the mice, the snakes will all die in our household. Maybe you're really nice and you like catch them and then you release them later. I see David Irwood back there. That's not his plan for sure as an exterminator, right? You say, they don't belong here. Like this is my home. People are fine. Insects, animals are not. In the text of scripture that we go to this evening, we are reminded that there are certain things that do not belong in your life as a believer. They may have been there at one time, but because God has done a work, because you've been saved and rescued from your sins, these things don't belong. And in fact, much like we would with a wasp or mouse or snake, we're told to kill these things, to mortify them, to put them to death. And if you look with me at Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we read, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. 
in the which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in them. Again, I'll just note for next week, even ahead, that the theme of what we need to continue getting rid of continues into verse 8. But as we've looked at now the last two weeks, getting into Colossians 3, verses 1 and 2, we've been told because of the work that God has done for us in Christ, because of his death, because of his resurrection, because of the forgiveness that he offers, because of the victory that he's accomplished, if you have accepted him, if you've been risen with him, then there are certain things we're now going to pursue. We're going to seek those things that are above. And then this morning, it's, we noted the fact it's not just this action of seeking these things, it's this affection or this attitude that says, I am putting my mind, I'm putting my heart there. Because that's where he is. I died to myself, verse 3, that we looked at this morning, chapter 2, verse 3. I died, my life now is hid with Christ in God. And then there comes that day, one day, when Christ, the one who is our life, does appear, and then we are with him in glory. So that changes the way I live. That changes my motive. That changes my goal. And coming out of it then, the Spirit of God now says, here's some additional instruction. Here's some commands as to what you are not to do. In fact, here's what you are to kill. So we pick up with verse 5. Let me remind you one, uh, one more time first that the context here points to future glory. When you get to the command in verse 5, we have that uh, familiar word, therefore, where there's a clear, important connection to what has preceded. We're not just doing this because it's a good thing to do. We're doing it because of the truth of what has immediately preceded in the text. We've been told, hey, there's coming this day when your Savior will appear. And when he does, if you have been raised with him, if you've been saved by him, you'll appear with him in glory. That's the future that awaits. And so on the basis of that future glory, this command is presently given. Beyond the fact that the command points to future glory, I want us to notice, secondly, the command presents an emphatic responsibility. An emphatic responsibility. Mortify, put to death your members that are upon the earth. The more I turned this idea over my mind, in my mind, I thought, man, the Lord has emphasized this a number of ways in the text of Scripture here. We could say, first, the command is emphatic due to the intensity of the word, Right? It's not often we go through things and go, I'm going to kill this. I'm going to put this to death. I'm going to mortify this. But we're given a very intense word that literally does mean put to death. It's, again, the kind of word we reserve for insects and animals that have uh, wrongly invaded where they should not have gone. But here we're told, take the sinful desires of your flesh and put them to death. Deal with them. Don't ignore them. Don't minimize them. Don't overlook them, right? Thinking back to the way we began in our illustration, there are unfortunately times where we go into life just like I entered the room, not knowing there's an enemy present. We can laugh when it's just a simple wasp in the room. Like you get stung once, it's done. It's not that big of a deal, right? So we're like, ugh, right? But it is a big deal when we realize that there is sin, there is temptation, there is an adversary, the devil, who is walking about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, who does want to destroy. And it does not serve us well if we minimize or excuse or overlook the sinful desires of the flesh when God tells us, 
put them to death. Be killing these things. I shared with you last week, it was John Owen, the Puritan preacher of yesteryear, who said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. The Spirit of God here is saying, take your flesh, these members that still do function even though you've died with Christ, even though uh, the old man is crucified with him, take them and put them to death in the way that you live. It's not only emphatic due to the intensity of the word, but secondly, the command is emphatic due to the singularity of the action. I don't want to be too technical, but the tense here, I often tell you, hey, this is a present tense command. This means do this in an ongoing way. We talked about that this morning even. This is not one of those present tense words. This is like a point in time, do it once and be done kind of word. And in my mind, I'm like, well, that battle like continues. I mean, read Romans 7, right? Like Paul, the apostle Paul, who said in Romans 6, the previous chapter, we're dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto Christ. I mean, he wrote that. He comes to chapter 7 and he says, the good things that I want to do, I don't do. And the bad things that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. I see this law in my warring, in my members, so that I cannot do the things that I would. Who's going to deliver me from the body of this death? That's Paul. And so I expect Paul and the Spirit of God through Paul to say, hey, be regularly killing sin because it's coming for you. But instead, he says, just deal with this. In essence, I believe he is emphasizing the need to take a mindset that says, kill sin, period. Now, again, that doesn't happen. We can argue theologically and certainly scripturally from other texts. That doesn't happen. Like, I did that back in 1998, and I've never had a battle with sin since. You wish, right? But to go, you know what? I died to that. I'm not going back to that. That has been put to death. And so while it may come knocking, it is not allowed in. I will not go there. In our weakness, we still will. We, we will have to, ask for, to confess our sins, ask for forgiveness of them. But the point here is, view your sinful members, view the battle with the flesh and say, I died to that. I have killed that. I have put that off. I'm not going back. In the future, he'll give us commands that are a little more durative or ongoing. But this one is emphasized in the singularity of act, the action. It's already been said, Romans 6, you should consider yourself to be dead to sin. Just think about it this way, because you died to that. You don't have to go back to that. So think that way. This command is emphatic due to the intensity of the word to kill. It's emphatic due to the singularity of the action. Third, the command is emphatic due to the theology of Christ's work. Again, we could go to a number of texts. I've already mentioned Romans 6 this morning. We went to Galatians chapter 2. But often when we speak of Christ's work, we're told, here's your position in Christ. Now, practically, here's how you live it out. So Romans 6, you're dead to sin. But you need to consider it to be so. You need to practice that practically, your position you've already been given. It's like the moment you're saved, the moment you put your faith in Christ... To be saved from your sins, you are said to be completely right with God meeting his standard. You're declared righteous. You're justified. That's your position. Are you still then to strive for that day to day in life? Absolutely. As he which hath called you is holy, so be holy in all manner of conversation. We're declared to be holy. We're declared to be saints. But we have to live it out. 
We're dead to sin, yes, but we need to live that out, saying, I will mortify my members which are upon the earth, those sinful temptations that my flesh brings up. Again, remembering the context, we could also say the command is emphatic due to the glory of the future. Put this to death because of what awaits. Go through these difficulties, these challenges, these battles now because here's what awaits. It it goes back to what we looked at this morning. It's what's your why? Because of what awaits, because of the opportunity to be with my Savior, because of that, I will mortify my members which are upon the earth. But fifth, as we continue on in the text in front of us in Colossians chapter 3, we should keep in mind that the command is emphatic due to the gravity of our sin. We run to different places in the New Testament, and occasionally we're given these sin lists, if you will. 1 Corinthians 5 has a lengthy sin list. Romans 1 has a lengthy sin list. Galatians 5, the works of the flesh, has a lengthy sin list. Ephesians 5 has a lengthy sin list. Ephesians 4 has a lengthy sin list. Where over and over, the Spirit of God is taking us through and going, you know what comes out of you naturally? Like, don't forget this. Here's what comes out of you naturally. And the Spirit of God here says... Here's what happens if you don't put to death the flesh. Here's what comes out of you. And again, what is here is not a comprehensive list. It's not like here's all the sins possible. It's not even as comprehensive as like Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. But he's reminding us here are temptations that need to be dealt with, that need to be put to death if you've been saved by Christ, risen with him. He says first, fornication, the idea of being anything immoral, the word that underlies the, the Greek word that underlies our English word here is the word we get pornography from. To say, stay away from those things that lead to sexual immorality and say, I'm going to put that off. I'm going to mortify that temptation. I'm not going to give in because of what Christ has done for me. He next goes to the word uncleanness. It's an even broader word than fornication. It speaks of any kind of impurity whether sexual or simply moral, to say any kind of impurity, put that to death. You've been saved by Christ. You're righteous in him. You've risen with him. You died, so mortify it, put it to death. Next third, he goes to inordinate affections. These are wrong passions as we get from the idea of inordinate affections. It speaks of an ongoing wrong desire for immoral sin give you two other texts that elaborate further on this. One is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 5, where we're told, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that you would abstain from fornication. But it shows up in verse 5 as inordinate affection. It also shows up in Romans 1. I referenced a little bit ago the sin list there, where we're reminded that all of mankind, when we knew God, all of us, when we knew God, we glorified him not as God, neither were thankful. We became vain in our imagination. Our foolish heart was darkened. Professing ourselves to be wise, we became fools. But in verses 26 and 27, this idea of inordinate affection, the Greek words that are used here are used there, describing the fact that actually people begin to value the wrong things relationally, what we see in our culture today where it is a wrong desire, it is a same-sex attraction or same-sex relationship. And then fourth, he uses the word evil concupiscence or the idea of evil desires. To go, this is something that I really want and it's not right and it's not good and it is sinful, but I want it so that I feel that I have to have it. Again, if we lose sight of what Christ has done for us, 
We've been talking about this a lot on Wednesday nights if you've been with us, Romans 12. The reason we are not conformed to the world, the reason we are transformed is not because, well, I'll just have a better life if I don't do that, although I believe that's true. The reason we do that is because by the mercies of God, he saved us. Because of what God has done for us, we are urged to live differently. And so it's because of what Christ has done, we say, I died to those things. My, my life is now hid with Christ in God, so I'm going to mortify these illegitimate desires that could show up in life. If, on the other hand, they begin to overcome me, I need to value the truth of 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, and say, I need to confess my sin, agree with God, this is wrong, and confess my sin and seek forgiveness from him. But I want to zero in for a moment on the final sin in the list here in verse 5. I want to zero in because I believe that's positionally, grammatically, and contextually appropriate. It's fascinating when we come to this word. I touched it briefly this morning. You know, he's gone through this list of all these very similar things, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and then he says, and covetousness. And he adds this extra phrase on the end, which is idolatry. And if that wasn't enough emphasis, just by having that little descriptive phrase at the end, if you were to look at this in the Greek New Testament, the article actually appears before the word covetousness, which is really strange. It's actually not been translated that way here. What does that mean with the article? If we translate it very literally, it means the covetousness. He's gone through all these sins and just described them as, yeah, it's kind of a thing and kind of a thing. And he comes to the end and says, and the covetousness, which is idolatry. This word covetous very literally means to have more. It's greed. He's saying there's this thing that sums up all that's taken place. I won't take the time to go through each of the four previously, but if you look at all four of those, the root cause is, I want more. I want more. I want more. I want what God has said is forbidden. I want more. And Paul, inspired by the Spirit of God, comes to the end of that list and says, you need to kill covetousness that desires to have more because it's idolatry. And that is the sinful heart of mankind we can go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Satan tempts Eve, tempts Adam with covetousness. Yea, have God said? I mean, they have all these trees that they can freely eat. There's one tree that they cannot. And yet having all that's available, it's like, oh, there's one thing. I mean, we watch this with like the youngest of children, right? You can put them in a room full of toys, and say, with all these toys, I just don't want you to touch that over there. And whatever that is, instantly has a pull. It's like, I have to. Because of the sinful propensity of our hearts now, after the fall. Adam and Eve are tempted by that one restriction. And they think, I've got to have more. I've got to have more. And we've gone through a whole sin list now in verse 5 of, here's something where you want more, you want more. It says, mortify covetousness, the desire to have more, because when we do that, it's idolatry. You're worshiping that more than the God who gave you all those good gifts. I realize full well that some of the issues that could be addressed aren't necessarily found in verse 5. But I would ask you, are there areas where you go, you know what, I need to mortify covetousness right there. My heart is not content. We live in a pretty discontent society. 
There are all kinds of goals of companies and advertisers to feed that to make you discontent. And go, I, I got to have more. I got to have more. I, I got to have better relationships. And I, I got I to gotta change the way that they think about me. And I've got to have this possession. And, and I've got to see this accomplished. And there's this constant desire for more, for more, for more, for more, for more. And the heart of man is never satisfied. He's saying, mortify therefore your members. He lists several sins, but he comes down at the end and says, and the covetousness and the desire to have more because it is a functional God replacement, and God has no rivals. It's idolatry. By God's grace, through his spirit, he calls Christians to deny themselves, to say no, to live for him instead. And if we aren't careful, we will not worship God. We will end up worshiping ourselves and our desires and seeking to feed them instead. Here we're told, mortify those things. We have an emphatic responsibility. That's where we spent most of our time, looking at, yes, this context of future glory, this command that gives us this emphatic responsibility. But third, as we come to verse 6, notice with me the consequences. The consequences represent righteous severity. Righteous severity. Why do we put this to death? Well, yes, because of what Christ has done for us, because of the glory that awaits. That's all true. But as if that weren't enough, we're told here, for which things sake, for all of those sins' sake, the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. In verse 6, we're very simply reminded that our sovereign God does judge sin. He's absolutely just in doing so. It's one of the concerns in my mind as we think about modern Christianity today is that we lose the idea that God is so holy, he is so righteous, that he must judge sin or you lose a just God. Yes, God is loving. Yes, God is merciful. Praise God for but he is also holy. He is also just. He will not let, cannot let sin go unpunished. He, will, he has joyfully paid for it through his son, Jesus Christ. But unless we accept him, we turn to him in faith, that judgment still happens. And here we are being told that because of these sins, this covetousness, this idolatry that's in people's lives, God's wrath is coming on children of disobedience. We certainly can go to a number of texts in Scripture to be reminded of ultimate wrath of God. We can read through the book of Revelation, walking through the seven years of tribulation, going beyond that to even see ultimate judgment before eternity. It's all true, but the author of Scripture here, inspired by the Spirit of God, makes it very vivid, just painting it presently. It's because of these things the wrath of God is currently on the children of disobedience. He stands against them, giving consequences. And again, the word that's used here is wrath. God's righteous anger stands against that kind of sin. All the more reason for a believer to say, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. Don't go back to that kind of sin. Fight against the desire to have more. That's idolatry because God's judgment does come on mankind for sin. 
We've seen the context points to future glory. The command presents an emphatic responsibility. The consequences represent righteous severity. And now fourth, as we come to verse 7, your conversion demands a new identity. Your conversion demands a new identity. He says, in which ye also walked sometime when ye lived in him. He says, you used to live that way. He's going to go on in verse 8, as we'll see, Lord willing, next Sunday. So put off these things and put on these things, much like Ephesians chapter 4. To say, because you're different, because you've been changed, live differently. But here in verse 7, having coming out of the harsh judgment against the children in verse 6, he says, you used to be like this. You used to live that way. You don't anymore. That's why you're supposed to mortify these things. You're supposed to put to death these sins. So we consider this, there are three simple thoughts of application that I want to put in front of you. One, you read that, here's what you were, in which you also used to walk in time past. I think, one, that ought to bring a sense of humility and remind us of where we were. To go apart from grace, apart from what we looked at in Ephesians 2, what God has done, or Ephesians, Colossians 2, what God has done for us in Christ, we'd still be there, children of disobedience, under his wrath, dead, as 2.13 says, in our sins and the uncircumcision of our flesh. It ought to bring a sense of humility. But I believe with that, it ought to also bring a sense of rejoicing. Say, Lord, thank you. I want to praise you. I want to rejoice in what you've done for me. That I'm no longer under your wrath. I'm no longer described as a child of disobedience. Christ is my life, chapter 3, verse 4. So that then having this sense of humility, this sense of rejoicing, finally we have motivation. You know, you know what, I, I will fight sin in my life. I will consider it dead. I, I will fight the desire to have more and some of these impurities and immoralities that are mentioned there. I will fight that because of what God has done for me in Christ. I'm no longer under his wrath. I'm no longer a child of disobedience because of what he has done for me in his son. Let's close in prayer. Fathers, we think about the truth we've looked at this evening. We do rejoice that through your son, we aren't any longer children of disobedience. We are yours. But Lord, I pray that the command of Scripture would be a warning for every Christian here, perhaps for some, a call to repentance, to say that there is a need for me to mortify my members which are upon the earth, to put to death this battle with the flesh that is always desiring more, is always craving, is always looking for goodness beyond what you've given to us. That, Lord, instead we might remain submitted to your boundaries, to your commands, to your will, so that you are pleased in us. Lord, again, we're humbled that you've loved us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.